Welcome to this evidence-based nursing podcast. I'm Roberta Heal. I'm an associate professor at Laurentian University in Ontario, Canada, and an associate editor of Evidence-Based Nursing. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter O'Halloran from Queen's University, Belfast. We will be discussing a study that explored the experiences of critical care healthcare providers after the discontinuation of the Liverpool Care Pathway in critical care settings. Welcome, Dr. O'Halloran. I wonder if you would begin by introducing yourself and your current role to our listeners. Uh, yes, thanks very much. Uh, I'm a nurse by profession. I worked for 20 years in the uh, National Health Service in the UK, mainly in critical care. And um, some years ago, I then moved into academia. And uh, since 2003, I've been a lecturer in nursing at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Queen's University, Belfast. My research is mainly health services research into uh, palliative care and with uh, people who have who have life-limiting illnesses. Thank you. I think your experience will certainly be helpful in reviewing this particular study. And would you start then by giving some background to the issue? For example, what is the Liverpool Care Pathway for those who aren't familiar, and why is it no longer in use in critical care settings? Okay. Um, the the history of the Liverpool Care Pathway goes like this. In, in the early 1990s in the UK, there was quite widespread concern that uh, palliative care, uh, particularly in acute hospitals, wasn't as good as it, as it could be. Now, there were good models of palliative care uh, in hospices, and the UK has a long tradition of, of hospice care. So with those two things in mind, um, the Royal Liverpool University Hospital got together with Marie Curie the Marie Curie Palliative Care Institute. Marie Curie are um, a major uh, UK charity who work in the area of palliative care. So those two institutions got together and developed the Liverpool Care Pathway in the late 1990s. And what the pathway was, was it was a document and a process and a set of practices that was intended to transfer the best practice that had been developed within the hospices into acute and community care. So it was trying to look at that model of good practice, distill it into a set of processes, and, and then um, transfer it into, a, in, into acute care to improve the care for patients who were thought to be in the last two or three days of life. Um, now, the, the, the focus of the LCP, uh, I'll just run through that for you. Um, the focus was this. There was a focus on full and active communication with the patient and their relatives. There was a recognition that the, the patient and the relative needed to be um, aware that the patient was dying um, and a full explanation given for what was going on, that they should have an opportunity to, to discuss what was important to them in the dying process. There was a focus on anticipatory prescribing for common symptoms, a review of current interventions to see if they were still useful uh, to the patient, a review of the need for artificial nutrition or hydration, and, th and that the patient would be supported to take fluids and, and food by mouth as long as they could, a focus on skin integrity, and, and, and also a recognition that ongoing assessment was essential. So those were the sort of core um, components of the Liverpool Care Pathway. It was surrounded and supported by a system of facilitation 
and um, education and training, and also audit and feedback. So it was it was intended to be quite a comprehensive package. It does appear to be so, and I'm it's been curious as to why it's no longer in use. Yes, uh, it, it, it's something of a puzzle. The, the the pathway had been in use probably eight or nine years when um, some professionals, some patients, some relatives were began to raise concerns. I, I think there were three main main areas. Um, one was that it was felt that sometimes the person making the decision as to whether the patient should go on the Liverpool Care Pathway didn't have sufficient seniority and experience to make that decision. Uh, and sometimes it wasn't recognized that the person might have the opportunity or the potential to, to improve. There was concerns that a dying person might have been unduly sedated, uh, so wrong use of medications. And also a perception that um, sometimes hydration and, and some essential treatments had been uh, inappropriately withheld or, or withdrawn, and uh, w- w- you know which would have a, a negative effect on the quality of life of the person concerned. So th- those concerns were beginning to be expressed. They were taken up by some parts of the press, and. Really, I, I suppose in the teeth of most professional opinion, the, the pathway fell into general disrepute. I think that's partly because of the inherent sensitivities around death and dying and really a misunderstanding um, of what the pathway was about. But also, I think, no doubt, because on occasion the pathway was inappropriately used. So the, the staff weren't properly trained, the pathway wasn't used as intended, and consequently, you know, there were negative results for patients. So it it became highly controversial. Uh, this was, uh, I suppose, about from about 2010 to 2012, and then finally, um, the, in 2013, there was an independent review uh, set up by the Department of Health here in the UK. It was called More Care, Less Pathway, and um, that basically said that the concluded that the pathway should be phased out and um, other arrangements made. Well, that led on then to an, a new document. This was produced by the Leadership Alliance for the Care of Dying People. Uh, that was um, uh, more than 20 organizations from across the healthcare system, including the Department of Health. And um, that that came up with a another document which was called One Chance to Get It Right. And that was intended to be a system-wide response to the independent review. Now that document um, focused on five priorities of, for care of the dying person. So they, they, they wanted to replace the pathway with a process of um, uh, personalized care planning. So the five priorities were these. I'll, I'll just give them to you. Um, when it's thought that a person may die within the next few days, this possibility is recognized and communicated clearly. Decisions made and actions taken in accordance with the person's needs and wishes. And these are regularly reviewed and decisions revised accordingly. That there's sensitive communication between staff, the dying person and their relatives. That the dying person and their relatives are involved in decisions about treatment and care. And that the needs of families and others are identified as important as important to the dying partner, person are actively explored, 
that there is an individual plan of care which includes food and drink, symptom control and psychological, social and spiritual support. And uh, so that was the five priorities. And I think, I mean, one immediately thinks, well, that's very similar to the Liverpool Care Pathway. But we can get back to that. It's very interesting. And I can see that there's probably um, a time period where this um, care of patients very close to death would have been a bit in limbo in the hospital settings or critical care settings. And I'm just, uh, we can move to the study. Can you tell us then what the researchers investigated in this particular study that we're focusing on today? Certainly. So the the study is is called Life After the Liverpool Care Pathway, a qualitative study of critical care practitioners delivering end-of-life care. It was published in the Journal of Advanced Nursing in 2015. Now, the aim of the study was to explore the experiences challenges and practices of critical care practitioners after the LCP. So these were practitioners who had been in practice whilst the LCP was was in use and the LCP had now been phased out and the researchers came to them to talk about their experiences um, of care after the LCP had been stopped. So they did um, semi-structured interviews with uh, 14 critical care practitioners. Okay, so what does the paper tell us about the issue and uh, what sorts of conclusions were made by the author of the original paper? Okay. Um, what the paper found was that critical care practitioners, practitioners had learned from the Liverpool Care Pathway. So they, they were still, if you like, informally using the principles and practices uh, of the pathway to deliver end-of-life care. They also reported that in the absence of the care pathway, there was uh, a certain degree of uncertainty and inconsistency in the delivery of end-of-life care, especially for less experienced practitioners. In looking back on the pathway, they they felt that its structured format was could be useful, but could also turn into what they called a tick box exercise. In other words, you know, rather than individualizing care, you would deliver care in a routinized manner. And they also felt that it it was associated with a lack of family involvement. So those, those were the, the main things they found. Um, their conclusions, uh, they said that despite experienced critical care practitioners being able to deliver quality of end-of-life care without using the Liverpool Care Pathway, the junior nursing and medical staff did need clear guidelines uh, and support from experienced mentors. And they said further that evidence-based guidelines related to family involvement in end-of-life care planning in critical care settings are needed to avoid future controversies. So that was was the basic findings of the paper. And from your experience, do you agree with these conclusions? Well, yes and no. I think that their main conclusion that experienced critical care practitioners could deliver good end-of-life care without the LCP, but junior staff missed the support that they got from clear guidelines. I think they demonstrated that in their research. Where I think I have some difficulty in going with them is is in their recommendations. They they recommended a number of things. They recommended that future end-of-life care planning approaches should ensure patient and family involvement, that guidance should be issued around key palliative care decisions, and that education and mentorship should be available to critical care practitioners. Now, you, you, you couldn't argue with that, 
But the fact is that um, all of those things were recommended and, and should have been associated with the Liverpool Care Pathway, uh, and they were seen as integral to the success of the Liverpool Care Pathway. So in one way, I suppose, yes, you know, they're, they're reporting what happened effectively in their unit, but I think when they try and look at the implications, they haven't, I think, sufficiently grasped the, the wider context which is that the LCP was introduced into a certain context. It failed in that context. And whatever comes after it is going to be implemented and used in that context. And, you know, no one intervention is going to fundamentally change the organizational context of the NHS. So that's, that, I think, is, is my take on, on their research. All right, thank you. What do you feel are implications for practice from these findings? Well, I think it's evident that removing the LCP in and of itself is not a solution. It's left a vacuum to a certain extent. I think as well that uh, if you if you look at the document pro produced by the Leadership Alliance, uh, One Chance to Get It Right, one of the things that they looked at was that in order to achieve the priorities of care that they had identified, there was a burden of responsibility on service providers and employers. And specifically, they looked at leadership, accountability and responsibility, at ed education, training and support, at having a culture of care and compassion, um, having a supportive environment, and having clinical governance and systems of care which supported those priorities of care. Now, I think that's just right, because what it's doing is, is it's recognizing that it's not just about the practice of individual practitioners because people practice in a certain organizational environment and that can be supportive or, or else it can actually be obstructive and I think that uh, you know there, there are certain factors at work in the National Health Service and I suspect in in the health services of many developed uh, nations which actually work against good palliative care so I think address the implication for practice are that you need to address organizational as well as clinical issues if you're going to be successful. If you look back to the um, original independent review in 2013, I'll, I'll just, here's a quotation from, that, from the forward of that review. It says, approaches like the LCP have made a valuable contribution to, improving, to improve the timeliness and quality of clinical decisions in the care of dying patients. And plenty of evidence received by the review shows that when the LCP is used properly, patients die a peaceful and dignified death. But implementation of the LCP is sometimes associated with poor care. So I think that shows that the, the difficulties are not intrinsic to the Liverpool Care Pathway, but they are actually more to do with the implementation of really what is a complex intervention in the organizational context of the, of the NHS. I, I tend to agree with you about the impact of organizational culture on the implementation of uh, any evidence-based uh, algorithm, um, particularly in palliative care. Yeah. And uh, moving forward then, what further research do you feel would be needed in this area? Well, um, if, if I might refer to our own research for, for a moment, we, um, in fact, published a couple of papers on the Liverpool Care Pathway, review the literature in uh, Worldviews of Evidence-Based Nursing in 2014, sorry, 2013, and then 2014, uh, an evaluation in um, 
BMJ supportive and palliative care. Now, what what we found was that the in terms of the RCP, that the key components of the intervention, which at that stage were a dedicated facilitator, education and training, audit and feedback, were very important. That they needed to influence the beliefs of staff in relation to end of end of life care and to increase their motivation and self-efficacy. But we also found that the support of senior managers is vital uh, to release the necessary resources. Also, particularly within a, in acute care, there's a dominant culture of cure, uh, which, I mean, the caricature is that every death is a failure. And, and that can work against effective communication and, and collaboration. So really, you know, you need an ongoing commitment to planning and training um, and and also a recognition, I think, of how organisations work. You know, the hierarchies within them, the professional relationships, and the dif- different educational needs of professional disciplines. And I think medical consultants uh, actually need particular support uh, because they have a leading role as gatekeepers and as communicators uh, with patients and their relatives. And you know, given the widespread misunderstanding of of palliative care and end-of-life care, that, that communication can be fraught with difficulty. So I think that that, that, that gives you an idea, really, of the issues that one, need, one would need to address in further research. I think if we look at the five priorities of care, those obviously would need to be operationalized and implemented, and I think that there's work to be done looking at how best to do that. I think there's work to be done on communication about death and dying, both in terms of public understanding and also the communication between professionals and families. And I think advanced care planning is, is, uh, is also a very important area because one of the things we found in our own research was that a difficulty associated with the Liverpool Care Pathway was that sometimes when the pathway was being introduced, that was the first time that the patient or their relatives had had a conversation with the professionals around death and dying. Uh, And so, you know, given that this is the last two or three days of life, that's too late, really, for that conversation. So I think advanced care planning and the change in culture that needs to come to make that work, I think that's very important so that the conversations begin much earlier uh, and people have time and opportunity to think ahead and, 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 you know, make the necessary um, mental and spiritual and emotional adjustments uh, that they will need to make as, as they approach the end of life. Those, I think, are important things to investigate. Wow, it is a very complex issue. Yeah. And asking you for one thing that people could take away from it may be difficult, but is there any one particular point that you'd like to make to summarize? Yes. I, I think it's obvious that good... Good palliative care is complex, and uh, so it's dependent on both the skills and attitudes of staff, but also on the organizational context in which they work. So I think the takeaway message is that if we're going to improve palliative care, uh, we must focus not only on equipping staff, but ensuring that there are enough staff to do the work and that the organization facilitates them to do that and provides the necessary uh, resources, the necessary accountability, the necessary leadership to make good palliative care happen. Okay, thank you very much for this very insightful and thought-provoking podcast. 
uh, we very much appreciate your contribution. Thank you, Roberta. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you.